So I don't think the solution is withdrawing and letting everybody else make the decisions, but I think it's about joining the conversation and um, shaping the future. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Stories from Indigenous Public Servants. Kansai. This is Indigenous Perspectives, a program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants, what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada. In a speech in 2015, Sheila Watt-Cloutier said, The world I was born into has changed forever. I traveled only by dog team on the ice and snow in the Arctic the first 10 years of my life. In my childhood, our small family was carried safely on our sled across the frozen land and ice with my brothers leading the dog team. The Arctic may seem cold and desolate, but to us Inuit families it brought us, and still brings us, the most succulent and nutritious food, not to mention the greatest lessons are offered and learned on this icy terrain helping to develop sound judgment and wisdom for our children. Inuit of my generation have lived in both the Ice Age and the Space Age. If we continue to allow the Arctic to melt, we lose more than the planet that has nurtured us for all of human history. We lose the wisdom required for us to sustain it. My life's work has been about reminding people of their importance in the web of existence on this planet. My core message is that we are all connected. In the Arctic, we may be far from the world's corridors of power, but the hunter who falls through the thinning sea ice in the Arctic is connected to industries of the South, the rising waters and stronger hurricanes which threaten the United States, to melting glaciers in the Andes and the Himalayas, to the flooding of low-lying and small island states. The hunter that Watt Cloutier is referring to, but not named in her speech, is Simon Natak, her neighbor. His knowledge of the land and the water was vast, carried from generations before him. But in 2001, what was once a safe path over ice turned out to be dangerously thin. When he failed to return home, the people worried, and a search was begun. Two days later, Natak was found. He crawled from the waters and survived, but his body had been ravaged by frostbite. In hospital, nothing could be done to save his legs. A terrible tragedy, unsettling to imagine, and yet, but a single example of a single person harmed by the effects of the toxins released into the wind and the water. In her memoir, The Right to be Cold, Watt Cloutier draws a direct connection between climate change and the rights of Inuit people. She characterizes climate change as the second wave of an assault on Inuit identity, who are still healing from the first melee, residential schools. But what's the remedy? Well, 
With contemplation, every person in their heart and mind could probably imagine what they might do, which might seem insignificant individually, but which would be enormously beneficial once multiplied millions of times by the same caring from other people. And as for the government and the public service, it can be as simple and powerful as using the tools at hand. Foreign policy, environmental policy, economic policy. Policy is powerful. It's been the force behind terrible wrongs in the past. But it can also be the force to right past wrongs, stop wrongs in their path, and deter wrongs in the future. In their own words, the thoughts and feelings of some of Canada's own public servants about choosing a career in the public service. I think uh, being an Indigenous employee in the public service right now is exciting times given the, you know, the current administration's priority, high priority on Indigenous relationships between the Government of Canada and the Indigenous peoples of Canada, the First Nations, the Métis and the Inuit. I think as an Indigenous person, we can be encouraged that it is a high priority of this Prime Minister and his, and his government. government. Uh, you know, the, that priority is embedded in the ministerial letters and there's expectations that each minister will do their best to improve the relationships between respective departments and Indigenous communities that they are involved with on a, on a regular basis. So I think, I guess the challenge then is to see how we might be able to contribute to that whole process, uh, taking our experiences and our knowledge and our heritage and the teachings that we've had all of our lives and bringing that into the into the conversations within the departments that we all work in and being able to make a contribution to Indigenous policy and program delivery and the like for Indigenous peoples and communities, but also internally with, uh, you know, recruitment, retention, career development policies that each department is actively involved in. I'm most familiar with uh, what's going on in ESDC and Service Canada and Labour, and I know that it is a high priority for the department as a whole in terms of Indigenous awareness. Truth and Reconciliation Report recommendation number 57 is being taken very, very seriously, and uh, as the chairperson for the ESTC's Indigenous Employees Circle, uh, we are assisting the department with uh, recommendation number 57 that calls upon all levels of government in Canada to educate and make their respective public services more aware of Indigenous histories, cultures, traditions, and and issues both past, ongoing, and future, but also to develop uh, and improve on cultural competencies within the public service, the respective public services, so that you know, these public services can be more effective in their relationships and their ongoing 
work with Indigenous peoples and communities. So uh, it's a high priority for us in ESDC. Uh, you know, right from the minister to the deputy minister to senior leadership to re- the regional management teams, right down to the employee level. And that's where the Indigenous Employees Circle uh, has a lot of experience and knowledge as to what's going on uh, at the ground level. It's not all good. Uh, we've heard recent uh, we've heard recent stories where harassment and discrimination continues to be an issue in some workplaces. And just today, our deputy ministers and and uh, senior senior ADMs put out a uh, an all staff communication aimed at that particular issue. The harassment and discrimination that's going on within the department that they hear about and and the department's commitment to doing everything it can to address those issues in a very serious way. So that's that's encouraging. So, I mean, there are a lot of positive things going on in the public service as a whole, and I know that, the, you know, it's happening in provinces as well, but at the federal public service level, again, it's a high priority. Departments are trying to find their way down the reconciliation path. They know that they need their Indigenous employees to help them navigate that path and, and to support, uh, you know, the, the dialogue with Indigenous leaders and communities along the way. And uh, like I say, it's just an exciting time for an Indigenous employee in the public service to be able to have that opportunity. It's just a matter of, you know, senior leadership and managers, at right down to the manager level, the mid-manager or lower le- manager level, to not just only be aware of the talk and talk the talk, but walk the talk. That's that's the most important thing. I think as Indigenous employees, as, as Indigenous people, we have a certain perspective, a certain knowledge and experience in 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 our in our you know in our in the way we've been brought up in our communities and in our families that can really make a contribution. But we really need our supervisors and managers' support in allowing that contribution to be heard and to and to be able to lead by example. So that's that's a message that that uh, the Indigenous Employee Circle is making loud and clear to our senior leaders who are very open to our input and our feedback and our perspective. Our deputy minister is a true champion. I see her as a true champion for, for you know, reconciliation and Indigenous awareness and, 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 and being proactive in everything the department can do in terms of recruitment, retention, career development, uh, you know, respecting and honouring the indigenous territories upon which we all we do our business. She's a real champion and has shown a real commitment to that. So, again, it's just a, it's just a great time, and we should uh, we just need our, our our managers' support to be able to take advantage of this time and, and contribute the way we can. I never in a million years thought I would ever work in public service. When I started in 2004, I had just graduated with Bachelor of Science in Biology. And prior to that, while I was in university, and even before that, I was really involved in a lot of community advocacy work, both on the environmental and political side. So the thought of coming to work for the machine was really abhorrent 
um, for a lot of for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. My very first job in the public sector was with Canadian Wildlife Service, and I was combining two passions: so the production of Indigenous traditional knowledge and species at risk. So I got to take my science background and a lot of my kind of community involvement and marry those into my first job. So that's that's kind of how it all started. I'm not trained in policy at all, but I I had all of this policy development experience from my advocacy work, specifically on the federal political kind of end of things. Um, prior to my life as a public servant, I used to be executive leadership for the Liberal Party of Canada, specifically on the Aboriginal People's Commission. So that was encouraging Indigenous voices in federal policymaking and trying to get more Indigenous candidates to run for the Liberal Party of Canada, which continues to be a problem. But it was definitely a big issue in 2004 on to 2006 and 2007 when I was with the party. Um, so that's where my policy experience came from. It wasn't actually from formal education. And um, my journey started from science, and then I became a science bridge between um, people who worked on environmental assessment and people who engaged with Indigenous communities. This was before consultation with Aboriginal people was mandated by the Supreme Court of Canada. So I got to... I got to kind of speak two languages, which was understanding a community's perspectives on natural resource development, but also understanding the science behind it. So I, I moved on to Environment Canada doing, uh, doing that kind of work. So I was an Aboriginal Affairs Advisor. And then Ottawa came calling. So I started back in the region, so back in Atlantic Canada where I'm from, so in my home territory. Um, Health Canada offered me a job at the First Nation Inuit Health Branch. It seemed like a good opportunity. And I'm like, okay, I'll just come to Ottawa for a year. I'll just get some experience. And then I'll go back. I'll go back to Nova Scotia. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was 11 years yeah. ago next month. Yeah. So it's uh, it's funny because the, the journey that I thought I was going to have was, oh, I'll work in the government for a little while. And then I'm going to go back to Nova Scotia. Then I'm going to run for member of parliament. Then I'll be minister eventually. That was what I thought I wanted. Then I got here and I just got sucked into progressively more interesting work and my career developed as a result. Like I worked at Health Canada and then I moved on to INAC and I worked in uh, consultation and accommodation, which is a tricky file. Like it was, uh, it was the beginning of the legal duty to consult. That's when I started that job. Um, did that for seven years, um, had a ill-advised um, turn at Transport Canada in civil aviation. I wanted to do something out of the Indigenous world for a little while and came back to INAC. Now I'm here. In terms of INAC itself, some of the perception from the local community was Oh, why are you moving to the dark side? We work against them, not with them. So there was some of that perception too, especially in some of the smaller communities due to the lack of trust. 
and then fast forward 10 years um, with this current government looking at reconciliation and the way it works with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities and organizations. I've been saying for a good year that it's a really excellent time to be an Indigenous employee in the Federal Public Service, whether it's in the NCR, Northern regions or out West regions, any of the regions, because the commitment is there to to work with Indigenous organizations and to also work with Indigenous within government. So me personally and professionally, I um, I can definitely say I'm a really proud public servant. And the reason for moving into public servant, much like any race, whether you're Hanunak, white, or any race, really, one becomes a public servant to, to help fellow Canadians. If you look at historically, you would think that the last thing an Indigenous person might want to do is work for the Crown, given the history. But that said, I, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe behavior or characteristics to Indigenous people in terms of their ability to deliver on a work statement or vision, depending on where they, the individual might have grown up and what exposure they had to the culture and how deeply balanced they are between, you know, Indigenous and non. I don't like the non-Indigenous word. I think we need a new one. But, you know, how well they balance that. I mean, there's certainly some advantages in terms of the way of thinking, the values that people might bring to the job, thought processes and innovation and um, their own teachings in, in, in terms of how they behave and make contribution to the work. So I don't see that being different than somebody of any other cultural difference, you know, whether it's a person of color or different uh, country of birth. I don't think there's a disadvantage or an advantage. The only thing I think that might be different is the the history of the relationship between the Crown and Indigenous Canadians. I came here because I wanted to work in French. I'm from Manitoba, and I had, there were no, at the point that I left 20 years ago, there were no further opportunities as I had already worked at Sekai's Day. I had taught in Francophone school. So there was nothing there. Now it's different. And it was also a personal choice. It was separation. I left my home province to pursue change. I didn't know kind of coming to this stage in my career that I was going to be a witness to all this uh, change and potentially having the opportunity to contribute to it, even if it's in a small way. But it's really exciting. I am part of a program called the Aboriginal Leadership Development Initiative. It's been going in one form or another since 2009, I think. They have had four uh, cohorts now of the program. I'm in the most recent one where they take up to around 20 uh, Indigenous employees from across uh, the public service. Initially, it was just within INAC. This year, we have representatives from INAC, ESDC, Parks Canada, Corrections, and I'm probably forgetting something, somebody, and I'll hear about it later. But uh, it's cutting across more and more departments, and I think the plan next year is to make it open 
to an even broader reach of participating departments. Possibly, I'm not sure if it's going uh, public service-wide, but the objective is to broaden it. And it's a very creative initiative. It's comparable in some way to what the Horizons guys are, are doing with their, uh, or what they did with the Canada 150 project, what they're doing now with the Canada Beyond 150 project, what the Blueprint project did, is bringing people together from different professional settings, giving people a new professional network to rely on, as well as access to, to specific training to support people moving into management roles. Obviously, in this case, it being for Indigenous employees, it offers something that I had lost a little bit over the years in terms of having a professional network of other Indigenous employees, uh, mentors and peers who have similar experiences and bring similar perspectives to the workplace. And that's of tremendous value. The training is uh, includes a, a, a cultural component where we get to uh, do some cultural connections. So uh, our, our group, we... We went to Cornwall and Aquasasne and spent some time with uh, community uh, members and, and met some tremendous elders in, in Aquasasne. And we uh, we got to travel to Iqaluit and met and learned from some incredible Inuit elders and community uh, representatives working in different areas. And uh, we're going to go out west as well. And what that adds to it is, uh, to the experience, is just a connection. A, an integration of culture, but allowing us to bring, because we're in those settings, it allows us to bring our own cultures and, and experiences and, back, and backgrounds into the discussion and integrate those discussions with discussions around work and training and leadership. So it's very valuable that way. It's a small scale program. So if we've got 20, if we've got to about 20 people in the program this year, in, the, in any given cohort, they can reach 20. If they double the size of the program, they'll get to 40. If they quadruple it, they'll get to 80. Well, that's great. Uh, but the public, ser- the broader federal public service is well over 250,000 people. So the program will help in terms of it certainly helps us. Uh, will it be able to change, to be a catalyst for change across the broader public service in terms of culture? That remains to be seen. Was it always your intention to become a public servant, or is it something you just found your way into? Both my parents were public servants. So it's almost I, like a curse. Uh, did you feel like you had any <laughs> choice, or or did yeah. did they sort of open your eyes that this is something that's important that you could have an influence in and 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 add your voice to? Because some no, kids they want to just they just want to run the opposite direction of what mom and dad do. Like I'm going to find my own way in life. So yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, my parents, they never really welcomed me or thought that this is some place that I should be is in the um, in the public service. Right. So, it, it, you know, I just grew up and all I knew is that I had to go to university after high school. So that's what I did. And during my summer jobs, it, would, it was in the public service mm-hmm. up in Yellowknife. So um, when I graduated from university, that's when I just left the country. But when I came back in, since that's all I knew, you know, was office work and, you know, to get a job in the government, that was a thing for me, right? So that's what I did. And I think I did that probably because my parents did it too, right? And I always lived a comfortable life because they were in the public service. So I'm very happy to be a public servant today. 
Would you recommend uh, it, it to other uh, other indigenous people to join the public service? Like you didn't exactly, you, you had precedent because your parents did it, but they didn't necessarily sort of, hey, you should join. Would you, no, would not you, at all. Would you make that recommendation to other people? other indigenous people to join the the uh, well would i make that recommendation to my son no you know and it's not because i have anything against the public service it's because um in our culture it's my responsibility as a parent and what i've been taught is to find out what my child's gift is or gifts are and help work with that child on those gifts and so in other words find out what my child is good at and continue to help them get better at it. And all the stuff he's not good at, well, why would you, I get, you know, we just never want to focus on that because there's no points in it, right? So whether it's, you know, right now his gift is working with computers and he can do that in the federal public service, but would, you know, would I encourage him to do that? I would have to say no. From my heart, honest to God, no, because it's a tough place to work. And you can make a lot more money, I think, doing other things. Uh, I think it's better to to do what you came to earth to do, follow your passion. And, and that's the public service, so be it. But I find it hard to work in, with your passion in the federal, in, in the public service because it's not encouraged. So saying that, on the other hand, I now know that uh, working in the public service, um, I work in our sector with a lot of people who are very passionate about their job and very passionate at engaging Indigenous people who are very passionate working with their partners who are very passionate about working themselves out of a job. And for me, like, to see... The passion in the people that I work with think and believe that and work, working towards it makes me very happy to be working where I'm from. But if that is the passion of a high school student or a university student, you know, to want to come and, and make a difference, then you got to have the right, have to have the right ADM. You have to have the right leader in place. And if you don't have that, then you're just doing your work day to day. You're doing your work the best way you can do it, but it's not going to go anywhere if you don't have an ADM that's going to listen, wants to make a difference in with Indigenous people in their communities. And I'm fortunate right now that I do have an ADM that does want to make a difference and she's willing to listen. Very fortunate. So... The answer to your question, you know, would I encourage a young person? I would have to say to them to follow their passion. To follow their passion because it is, it, it's hard to work in the government as an Indigenous employee. So why do you think that Indigenous people should consider a career in the public service? It's our land. It's our government. Uh, We're from the land, of the land, for the land, with the land. It's us. And we need to keep it. We we see climate change. We see the environment. We see 
contamination. It's a way of taking and making a stand of taking our rightful place. We have our own governance structures in our own nation, but we need to go in terms of the global structure. We need to get involved uh, and we need to get the others involved. So it's a career and it doesn't matter at what level. We don't all need to be executive directors, but we need to be involved from the bottom up. I think they should, because federal government is uh, uh, government government of Canada is uh, representing uh, Inuit north of sixty. We need to have Inuit in all areas in the sectors, departments, divisions, so we could advance the Inuit portfolio even more so. I'd say it's comfortable. The opportunities are somewhat limited because of some of the language policies, but I'd say it's good. The first part of moving here was actually in support of the leadership at ITK because we were, we as ITK, negotiating with the Minister of INAC on the creation of what was then called the Inuit Secretariat, which would become the um, responsible secretariat within INAC that would um, facilitate awareness and promotion of Inuit-specific issues in the department. Because prior to that, the, the department was heavily focused on First Nations and, and Métis policies and programs and, and funding allocations. So throughout the negotiation of ITK and INAC at the time, the department recognized there was indeed a need to dedicate resources and, and organizational capacity to address Inuit issues, anywhere from housing to post-secondary um, land claim implementation, those types of issues. So throughout that process, one of the commitment was to bring in Inuit um, employees into the department who were familiar with Inuit issues, Inuit priorities, Inuit communities, as a way to help bridge the new secretariat into all the branches within the department because one of the main roles of that secretariat was also to educate other branches and directorates within the department. So Inuit felt it was really important that they had Inuit in the government to help promote and increase awareness. So throughout this process, the president at the time, Josie Kusubak, approached me because I was in his office and asked if I'd be interested to to move there either short-term or long-term to help the transition. So that was the whole process, and I decided that I was interested to help promote Inuit in the department, but also job security, the benefits, the permanency in terms of um, pay and just the security behind that, because ITK is a proposal-based organization, so no one was fully indeterminate or full-time. So that's what brought me there. 
it's kind of a tricky question because I don't, I, I, I feel like if somebody asked me, it, when I was, I was only in school just three or four years ago now, so I, I had a lot of interaction with students and still do. And some people still ask me how, like, is it good to work for the government? And I, I say it definitely is, but it, it's always, it's always frustrating because of the, the decision by committee um, for everything that's done. And sometimes I find decisions, and this is a personal opinion, uh, decisions that are made, maybe they're not, not the best interest for Canadians. They're just kind of just doing work for the sake of doing work. So getting into the public services, it's great. But for some people who maybe have a vast vision for their future, like they, and when, I, when I first started, I, uh, I wanted to uh, get into video, video production, and I thought to do music videos and cool things like that. And uh, then I heard about this government petition that was on thing that it was on CRA. And I had a lot of hesitance because I was like, oh, that's going to be a boring pencil pusher kind of job. Uh, but we've done some pretty cool stuff. And uh, I've come, along, come to different groups uh, in the government, and uh, each time it's been different. And, and uh, it depends. You, know, you have these uh, feast or famine kind of moments where you're, you're really having a good time, you're enjoying, you're feeling like your job is fruitful, but then sometimes it's not. And I think that in the private sector, there's just a little bit more, they cut off the fat, so to speak, and there's just a little bit more focus. So maybe you'll be a little bit more aggressively into cool projects and things like that. So when people ask me, like, is it a good idea to apply for government? I always kind of tell them, well, it depends on what you're, you're looking for. If you're looking for your job security and uh, density and cool stuff, you're going to get it, but it's not going to be every single day. And, um, I have told people maybe it's not for them, and I've told other people that it is for them. It's, you know, maybe sometimes you don't need that aggressive job that's looking for you know, somebody to do 40 hours of uh, overtime a week. And you just kind of need a job so you can get life going. For Indigenous people that have a very negative perception about about the federal public service, what could you say to try to make them excited as individuals that, that they really could make a difference to to be enacting change, to, to be contributing towards policies, to adding their, their perspective in, in a way that would actually see a, a difference in changing the way that our, our government, or at least the public service, works? I think that the government is honest in wanting to be inclusive and fair and transparent. So I think that joining the conversation it's going to be a fair and productive conversation overall, and I think there's power in numbers. So I don't think the solution is withdrawing and letting everybody else make the decisions, but I think it's about joining the conversation and um, shaping the future with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, all the different perspectives. I've talked to some other guests that have... They've experienced, I guess, some some negative feelings, almost as if they they they're siding with the big machine by becoming employees of the federal public service. What what could what could you say to to try to, I guess, alleviate concerns that that indigenous people that come to work for the public service are being co opted, they're being pulled in, and and they're it, it's it's dividing their 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 loyalties. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's been the history of government policy in Canada for over 200 years, assimilation. Uh, assimilation is, I mean, that's what the Indian Act's been all about. Uh, that's what some of the treaties are all about. That's what government policy is all about. And when government policy has 
try to do their best to assimilate Indigenous peoples in this country for so long. You can't help as an Indigenous person to feel that you're becoming part of this assimilative machine that's trying to gobble up your your identity, your culture, you know, and and your and your your world view. It's it's just a natural thing. The the Canada School of Public Service has got a new Indigenous Learning Series, and there's two there's two sessions that's being delivered right now across the country. One of one of the sessions is the uh, Kairos blanket exercise, which is just a, a powerful powerful exercise that shows what the relationship between the Europeans and the Indigenous communities in Turtle Island has been over the last 500 years. And it's just incredible to see, you know, from the time of contact to what it is now and, and the huge decimation of of the traditional territories of Indigenous peoples and, and their ways of life. It's, it's just a huge, huge... Uh, experience and, and it really shows what what happened there, but it also shows a, a, some of the the good things that are happening and coming from the resilience of indigenous communities and people along the way. Things like Shannon's dream, where she dreamt of a better education system for kids and better schools and clean water and communities and things like that. Uh, you know the the uh, the the orange shirt day, where you know. People are fighting back from the impacts of the Indian residential schools and and uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Report and the recent apologies and from the from the government of Canada to Indian residential school survivors and right across the country. So, I mean, we can't help but feel that you know we've been they've been trying to enforce assimilation all along, but. The indigenous communities, the indigenous peoples, have been resilient, and they're fighting back, and we're waiting, and, and, and we're slowly gaining our proper place in Canadian society, where we're where we're equals, and and we we will not be assimilated. We can integrate. We integration is very different from assimilation. When you integrate, you can integrate with your culture and your identity and your worldview intact. And you and, and and it's a partnership. It's a reconciliation process to bring those the cultures and the worldviews together, so that we're going down the path together. You know, working for the government and the whole reconciliation process, and being allowed to make the contributions that we can make from the experience and the background and the and the, and the cultural knowledge that we have. So, I can certainly see where people are coming from, but we have a real opportunity to change that. We have a real opportunity to to stand up and be proud of our of our of our cultures and our traditions and our heritage and 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 our perspectives, how we think about things now and how how we feel that you know the indigenous perspective should be brought into policy development and program delivery to get better results. So we have that opportunity, and I guess we can stay feeling that it's not a comfort comfortable place, but if we all do our part to make it a more comfortable place, to make it more respectful place, I think uh, I think we can come out of this with our culture and our integrity intact and not feel that uh, you know we're being swallowed up by the by the machine and and becoming robots.
you've just got to take a stand and, 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 and get involved and make the contribution that you can, that you can contribute from, from, from the Indigenous perspective. You know, for so long, I mean, I talk about government policies and how they tried to assimilate us for hundreds of years, the Indian Act. And it is, that's what it is. It's an assimilation policy that was, that still exists today. And that's been fought all along the way. And some ground has been made. And, and uh, eventually that department and that stigma of that government department will, will slowly fade into the past. And, and hopefully the new, the new road will be one where people can make equal contributions and not be assimilated and to be made to feel that we're, we're lesser than anybody else, and we we need a department to take care of us, and and uh, we can't take care of ourselves. And I think I think we're slowly, you know, we're we're in the healing process now. We're in we can we're in the reconciliation process. There's commitment uh, from senior levels in in the in the government, and uh, we've just got to do our part in making sure that that uh, we hold into that commitment, and we do our part to make sure that it works for everyone. Indigenous Perspectives, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous Perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Public servants featured in this episode were Fanny Bernard, Don Bilodeau, Andrea Dykstra, Jeanette Fraser, Ryan Jador, Daniel Jete, Tunichuli Kutu Shirello, Pamela Capuena, Tim Lowe, and Lisi Nakatarvik. Our main title music is by Boogie the Beat, with additional music provided by Andrea Baroni and Greg Ryder. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening. Uh-huh.